I mean, said it's same, a flaw. Same, but like, you know, I I gonna, uh, what a dumb comparison. <laughs> I can't believe you made it. I'm going to flame you for it on the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by the Countdown crew Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast we're on a mission to save the forest in our review of Miyazaki's final pre-Studio Ghibli effort, the 1984 post-apocalyptic fantasy Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. But first, Scott and Jay, how are you guys? Good, Scott. We're, We're two movies in now still feeling good it's starting to get nicer in new york so all in all no complaints scott shelton how are you you got an ex- you got an exciting couple weeks coming up sure i'm about to em- embark on my annual 10-day vacation into ohio of all places the place everyone wants to go to for vacation my understanding it's the hottest ticket in town to go to cincinnati ohio in mid-august but look i'm excited we're going to see some tennis do it every year um no, it's just nice to relax. I've been thinking a lot about vacation recently. Not that I have been working particularly hard. I mean, I'm working a normal amount, but I'm just like, it's been a while since I've I've taken an actual vacation. So it's going to be nice to check out of work um, at a time when it looks like things are going to be pretty bad at work for my coworkers next week. So sorry, guys, uh, leaving you high and dry on that one, but I'm sure you'll return the favor soon. Love to just, you know, walk out of the building with an explosion behind you, you know, the jo- Joker style and the Dark Knight or something. I, I think that's Yeah, the, I do think that the, the joke's image. like still a little bit on me because one of my other coworkers has a vacation the next week after me. And uh, I'm coming back. The Monday I come back is a big meeting with an executive with which I will not have been there doing the work the week before. So that's going to be fun. That's going to be a fun meeting for me to come back to. Uh, definitely nothing's going to go wrong. It'll be great. Well, you know, just enjoy every single minute of your vacation. I think that's what that means. Uh, And try not to think about what's waiting when you get back. But uh, today actually happens to be a first on the Countdown podcast, however, because we have a fourth person joining us for today's review. If you listen to Some Like It, Scott, you know him well. But for the first time on the Countdown series, we have Paul Oyama joining us. Paul, how are you? Oh, sorry. I thought this was the corporate logistics podcast we were doing. I didn't realize we were talking about movies today. Um, but no, I'm I'm uh, I'm very excited to be here. You have a, you have an announcement to make or something? Are you are if you thought that are you coming on to talk about corporate logistics? I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. I'm launching I'm launching a Patreon. I'm giving advice. I'm the CEO whisperer. Is it JMO? It's a JMO yeah. spinoff. It's a it's a spinoff of the JMO fan podcast. But got it. We'll get into that later. So, Paul, we wanted to have you on for this because I believe, uh, if I'm correct, Hayao Miyazaki is your favorite director of all time. Um, I also think that today's film may be one of your favorite films, if not your favorite film of all times. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I think I am not one that necessarily is beholden to the concept of like a favorite movie Mm -hmm. that is tried and true and this is the thing. Um, but on a lot of days, if you ask me, this is like arguably my favorite movie. Um, it's certainly one of my favorite movie protagonists. And we'll talk a lot about that, obviously, in, in the pod. 
Um, but yeah, just like a movie and a filmmaker, obviously I have a lot of affection for, um, and like a really interesting point in his career, I think, uh, and like a sort of obviously like a jumping off point for what is you know to come for the next you know four decades. I look forward. One of your favorite movies of all time, but a nine point five out of ten at the end of the episode. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. Listen, that's, there's it, no, I don't give tens. You know, it's going to be like nine point nine nine nine, and that's sure. all I'm going. I respect that. Well, that's you Why? and Jay. Then. <laughs> I don't that's respect not... it. I'm just confused. Yeah, that's Jay's still true. trying to reconcile giving a ten to Iron Man with everything else in his movie. That his movie never spectrum. happened. That never happened. <laughs> Paul doesn't know me well enough to know you're joking. Paul, that never happened. You said it. I thought it was an eleven. I heard eleven was the score. And Jay doesn't know Paul well enough to know that he's joking when he says he doesn't score anything at ten. So I guess <laughs> honors even for everyone there you here. Go. But, yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, uh, as mentioned today, our film is 1984's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, set 1,000 years ago after an ecological war that destroyed civilization and created a poison forest known as the Toxic Jungle. Nausicaa picks up in the titular Valley of the Wind where Princess Nausicaa, voiced by Allison Lohman, maintains peace in the jungle by communicating with its various animal inhabitants, including the massive, massive amorphous trilobites known as ohms. Nausicaa views the land and the creatures within it with compassion and interest, which is more than the rest of the world's inhabitants can say, including the warring kingdoms of Tolmeca and Pegite, who bring their conflict to the Valley of the Wind after an unexpected plane crash. The Tolmeca are led by Princess Kushana, voiced by Uma Thurman, who plans to use an embryo on board the downed plane to unleash a giant warrior, a humanoid bioweapon that was instrumental in causing the previous apocalypse. Nausicaa is pacifistic, but when violence comes to her home and threatens all that she has worked to build, her resolve is tested. Not content to simply play hostage, however, Nausicaa soon makes it her mission to use her passion and fortitude to unite the warring nations, save the jungle and its inhabitants from destruction, and perhaps see her kingdom's prophecy, which predicts a savior to come, fulfilled once and for all. Jay, as you're the only first-timer to this film, we'll start with you. Does Miyazaki's more complex and fantastical follow-up to the castle of Cagliostro wow with its prescient themes and strong female protagonist? Or is this an overly ambitious fantasy epic that fails to hold up by today's standards? I think it more than holds up, Scott. And, you know, the first word that comes to mind, like, is the word cute. I know it sounds diminutive, but I thought it was ultimately a very cute story. And I mean that as positively as one can use the word cute. Nausicaa ultimately is a pretty compelling protagonist. You know, the the scene where she meets the squirrel fox right from the get-go and is allowing it to bite her finger to try to get it to calm down. And she's just like, everything's okay. You know, nothing to worry about. That told me everything I needed to know about her. And, you know, it's, I think the story holds up. It still feels very relevant, again, thematically. Even some of the themes we could talk about today, we were talking about when we talked about Oppenheimer, you know, the idea of humanity being doomed by this weapon, the aftermath of it, et cetera. There, I think there's a lot that we can draw from, you know, ultimately with it, ending on some what of a positive note right not to you know spoil it right away but i think that it, it's a good story that i think will that has probably held up really well and i think will continue to do so i uh, should mention uh, just because i was the one uh, harping on this last time uh i i watched the dub um i believe scott shelton did as well um 
and you know it's at least a, it's at least a little funny that scott harvey introduced the film by naming the american voice actors if in, of which he did not watch clearly as you see from his pronunciation of the kingdom of pejai by the way just a funny observation yeah I, I, I was just assuming that the pronunciation in the original Japanese is different than how they, <laughs> how they say it. I mean, that's what I assumed. That's maybe, what I assumed. Maybe. You were, I don't mean that in any judgment. I was just like, oh, that's interesting that it's pronounced differently. Yeah. yeah uh, I mean, I guess I wasn't paying close enough attention. But yeah, I did watch the sub version. Uh, we had, like, again, last week we had the discourse about subs versus dubs and um, which version we were going to watch. I think... Going forward, we will be consistent with watching the dubs because that's what's going to be, you know, free and available. As, as long I've, as you didn't watch like the ninety-five minute the original Manson. dub cut, yeah. Warriors right. of, the, of the Wind, that's you're probably fine. Yeah, um, no, I didn't do that. But all right, we've heard from Jay. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum uh, with somebody who's seen this movie many times. Paul, uh, you did rewatch it for the podcast. Overall impression, general impressions of this movie. Why is it one of your favorites of all time? I think to me, and it's something that I don't mean to like come at Jay necessarily, um, although I guess I will have a sense. Um, I feel like the framing of her worldview or like the movie itself as cute is sort of like not the way that I think about it, at least, because um, I feel like that's not taking that those kind of humanist ideals seriously enough. And I think that like seeing the good in things, people, places, and like plants even um is kind of like what totally changes the paradigm of this world that they're in which is why i love this movie so much i think it takes a protagonist who um doesn't doesn't subscribe to the um to the point of view i think of most people that she's around where other people's reaction immediately when they're faced with confrontation from animal the animals or bugs or plants is to immediately attack them and i think the fact that um her mindset is completely different is what sort of like changes the course of this entire conflict. And that's what allows this dynamic between the humans and the natural world to sort of flip on its head. And I think that's sort of like what I love about the core themes of the movie. It's like this story about how optimism and, and, you know, like not looking for conflict, I think um, can change the way that we, that our relationships are to our, our world around us, the people and the, the other living things within it. Um, and I think that's something that remains consistently really powerful for me um, throughout many the many times I've watched this. And that's something that's really, really made it enduring, I think. And that's kind of like why I think she stands out. And, you know, she's a teenage girl, um, which maybe speaks to her like, you know, quote unquote naivete in some ways. But like, I think there's something interesting too in that idea that like, because she's not well-worn and jaded, like she still has the, uh, the opportunity to change things. And she has still has time to, to reshape the world into a little bit better. All right, Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, this is my first time revisiting the movie in a while. I saw this film probably originally like in 2017 and hadn't revisited it since, so didn't really have strong feelings. I mean, like with pretty much all Miyazaki movies across the board, I'm a pretty big fan of them uh, from the first viewing. And I think on the rewatch, I think one of the things that, that really stuck out to me was some of the stuff that... that Paul's talking about, I think you start to, you get like a better grasp almost of the context in the society that Nausicaa sort of lives in, not just of course, like Tolmechia and Pegite, but also just the Valley of the Wind. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of this film. It, it's still probably not up there at the top of my 
list of Miyazaki movies, but I mean, that's just like an incredibly high bar. And, you know, I, I sort of really enjoy the, one of the things that I, I think is true, was true for Kaguyosha. I think we talked about it. I think it's true for Nausicaa and it's true for almost all of his, all of his movies that are sort of have that fantasy skew. I and mean, most of his movies do is that the worlds just feel so lived in. I think that there's just some quality that I don't even think I can quite put my finger on, at least not yet. Maybe later in the conversation, I can arrive at what I'm trying to reach for, but there's just some quality of the worlds that even with some of the most basic characterization that he does on the surface or, or description, there's some familiarity and some warmth that I think always sort of arrives back at them, even in these sort of most like cold, desolate lands that frankly this world is in sort of like 1000 years after, you know, nuclear Holocaust essentially happens. And I think Nausicaa is as a character is a big part of that. I think some of the stuff that Paul was saying there about her sort of enduring optimism about trying to understand or trying to relate to things around her, I think is a big part of, of putting off that warmth. But I think one of the really things that, that struck me so powerfully on, on the rewatch was just how she's able to sort of navigate and like through the world. First, obviously, like she always has an immense familiarity with the Valley of the Wind and, you know, Lord Yupa, things like that, people she's familiar with, but also even as she starts to interact with people from Pegite, people from Tolmechia. I think that that what Paul's saying there is, is sort of just like a, a fundamentally different sort of worldview is is a really big part of why you just sort of start to root for her. And there is a sort of like almost like corniness in in her positivity in her outlook which i i think i don't know if it holds me back too much to get fully invested but like does feel like idealistic in a way and i think what what paul's talking about with her being so young i think is a big part of that like it'd be really hard to see like a 35 year old like like queen almost or, or like like about to be queen type figure and sort of believe the sort of open-mindedness that she almost has in a world where every single day you know these people are like fighting to survive like they've managed to carve out a nice island in the valley of the wind and they're graced by the winds off of the ocean keeping the spores at bay from the toxic jungle but you know they have to hunt for these spores and burn them to make sure that their their whole civilization isn't ruined and you know she has a 16 year old who's you know, living in whatever the equivalent of the palace is for them. Like she's managed to stay like you could, the, the sort of characterization of, of her makes it work, even if it is corny to some extent, which I think is, is interesting. I think that's not unusual necessarily for anime. I think something that we don't, we probably didn't talk that much about in the first one is that like, that is a trait of anime arcs and characters. And I think that where, what maybe sets this apart from, you know, other media and, and anime that we're not going to talk about because we're talking about Miyazaki exclusively here is that, you know, the characterization, I think, allows you not to have to just gloss over some of the elements of the characterization. And I think that's one of the things on, on the rewatch. I know I didn't really give too many of my overall thoughts on the movie, but I just find the world building that, that he does in this film and, and that he does in, frankly, all of his movies to just be sort of astounding, really. And as much as maybe the plot of the film um, it's not derivative, but I think is very basic. I think it makes up for and how rich the the texture of the actual world is in the film. And you know, the animation we talked about sort of the timelessness of the of the two D hand drawn animation style was in Cagliostro. 
think that's true for this. And I think that's really, really lends itself to this notion of, of feeling familiar, of feeling maybe even borderline nostalgic, um, feeling warmth. I think that's a big part of it. Um, it doesn't feel artificial in any way. It feels very real and lived in. And yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful film. And yeah, just to get in a little bit to some of the history of kind of why that world building exists, it's kind of a funny story that honestly feels very, very modern. After Castle of Cagliostro um, was made, Miyazaki was looking to make another film, but the studio that he was working with didn't want to make anything that wasn't based essentially on a different verbiage, but basically that wasn't based on IP and they needed something that was based on something. So he literally created the manga that this is based on to then make a movie that was based on something that already exists because it was a thing that he made. And the movie takes place like essentially in the middle of the manga. Like it doesn't even end where the manga ends. It doesn't start where it starts. So that's kind of, I think, speaks to why it feels like this is a world that is living and breathing and exists is because you're kind of taking a chunk out of it versus having to start from ground zero where you have to feel like you have to explain things. Which I think is one of the, the greatest strengths about movies in that they don't have to be as comprehensive, I think, as something like a TV show or sometimes like a novel or something. You can sort of just get a very brief, um, kind of like bite-sized chunk of whatever this idea is and just get like sort of like the um, the core of the ideas. And so I think that's what's so interesting about the movie. It's like starts in the like in the middle of the story, essentially. Like things, these things already exist. They don't give you a whole... I mean, there's like a little bit of backstory about the world itself, but it kind of just throws you into the middle of their life, which I think is kind of why it has that feel of like, oh, this is a world that exists. It's not just like, this didn't, this wasn't born when this, the film started. Like, this is just living breathing. Yeah, as far as my thoughts, um, yes, I really enjoy this movie. Uh, you know, on paper, it isn't something that I, you know, you might necessarily expect me to enjoy. We had the conversation yeah, a little bit last week. not really your thing. Right, yeah, about how we are going to have, you know, I really enjoyed The Castle of Cagliostro, watching that for the first time, and I was kind of reflecting on, well, maybe am I a fan more of the non-fantasy stuff or the, the light fantasy stuff, for example, something like, you know, Kiki's Delivery Service, which we're going to talk about. Um, and, you know... You know, the heavy fantasy stuff, again, kind of goes too far down a road for me. But, you know, you know, when you think about that in Miyazaki, you think about this movie, you think about Princess Mononoke, certainly, um, as being in that sort of, you know, heavy fantasy camp. And I still really enjoy those movies, even after rewatching this one. I loved it. Um, I, I honestly do. And I think he just is able to get to the humanity, regardless of how much else there is going on the creatures the different worlds the you know toxic plants and all of this stuff um despite all of these elements which might distance me in another movie um you have particularly here the character of nasca i think you know obviously is the the heart of the movie and um you know she has real ideas on her mind which are not just ideas in the context of this fantasy world this post-apocalyptic world that he's created but are ideas that you know we are still thinking about and debating and um you know talking about today in the world that we live in and you know obviously the relationship to war and violence is a big theme in the movie the relationship to the environment the sort of like spiritual relationship that she has to the environment and um just sort of the the callousness of human beings towards their environment. Um, I think all of that comes into play in this movie. 
that's certainly not you know something that we're we're not still dealing with today so uh, there's something about this movie that i can emotionally connect to pretty much from the beginning and that is able to guide me through all of the you know again like i said these other things that might distance me um because i see the big picture and i think that miyazaki just has that skill in whatever story he's doing to no, no, no matter how much other stuff is going on, he always is able to find that, you know, humanity there. And that is something that um, I think my favorite directors do only the, you know, directors that I admire the most. I think that's something that um, they're able to accomplish in whatever story they're trying to tell. I think the world, as you said, Scott, is um, extremely compelling here. Um, it doesn't need a lot of exposition to set it up, right? Like, I think all of it, comes along pretty naturally in the dialogue. We understand, you know, what happened with the, I mean, we get a little text on screen at the beginning, but, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of, um, you know, we're going to give you the whole backstory in the dialogue, right? It, it comes along pretty naturally and the events of the film, it kind of throws you right into the middle of it more or less. And I appreciated that because I think he tells the story well enough to where you don't, you don't need all of that extraneous stuff. Um, you're able to understand more or less what is going on, what everyone's goals are, and you know what position the world is in when the film opens. Um, and yeah, I, I I just find it a really sweeping and you know emotionally compelling story. Like I said, I think it builds up to an ending that is you know right up there with one you know some of the best endings in in cinema for me like the when when spoiler alert but you know you guys probably are not listening to this if you haven't watched the movie but when nausicaa comes you know walking in at the end of the movie on the tentacles of the ohms um fulfilling the prophecy that is just one of those like fist pumping you know like moments and you know what's funny about that is, so I recently read um, the uh, autobiography, essentially, I guess, of Toshio Suzuki, who's like the longtime producer and like one of the three big figureheads at Studio Ghibli. It's called Mixing Work with Pleasure, My Life at Studio Ghibli. And he tells a story about how actually originally Miyazaki wanted the ending to just be her flying to meet the Ohms, and then the movie just ends and that's it. Um, and so essentially there was that ending that was that was thrown around and then Suzuki and Isao Takahata, who's another big Studio Ghibli figure directed like Grave of the Fireflies and only yesterday, they essentially p pitched two additional potential story like like um, ending ideas. Um, one with her basically doing what happened in this movie, but then her just staying dead and making that sacrifice to change her world. And then the ending that we ended up with and they had to like essentially convince Miyazaki um, that that would be a more satisfying conclusion to the story and it's crazy to think like i feel like that totally fundamentally changes the way that you feel after you leave the movie um, you hear a lot of stories like that about movies where they were going to take certain scenes out or leave them in like sort of similar thing with like titanic like the scene with the vision of like the wedding at the end was like going to be a thing that they didn't really want to do for a while and that's an interesting thought experiment to me too is to think about how just changing i mean it's something that clearly was like a decision that they were not like beholden to you know like they were pretty open to possibilities of, of altering them and how that totally changes how this thing is seen by us you know decades later um, and would probably change the legacy of the thing like you just never know what the ripple effects of that are um, and it's crazy to think that 
he originally wanted the ending to be so like vague and like almost like not the same kind of thing, but like almost like Inception esque with the whole like vagueness of what's going to happen next, right? Um, it's a very different movie with that context. I think. I just watched Inception on 70 millimeters. So if you want to start an Inception conversation about the ending, I'm happy to go there. I didn't mean to bring so much Chris Nolan into this. I was really trying to avoid that, honestly. But Scott will Jay, find Jay started. No Jay started. Well, I'm the I'm the last person <laughs> to mention Nolan. Jay's talking about Oppenheimer at the start of the podcast. Now Paul's talking about Inception. I'm not even there yet. I'm ready to go there, guys. If you want to, don't worry. I mean, I'm afraid to say anything at this point. Paul's just going to take another swing at me. <laughs> <laughs> Here no, we I'm go. Cu- I'm curious. Cute, Jay, cute, cute is off limits, but corny is okay. I thought corny was worse. Like Scott, you I mean, I. <laughs> Scott, me, there will there be conversations about that too? I, I just feel okay, like cute okay. is more so is a more fundamental, like not like almost like misrepresentation of those ideas, and like well, that's cute, just cute feels condescending a little bit. To and me, I, I literally said as soon as I said that that it's a diminutive word, and I don't mean <laughs> it that way. Sure. I honestly like I'll, I'll I'll try to reframe. I mean, then we can move on. But like... I don't even mean you're wrong. I just think that the way that I see it is totally different, and I think that's why it's it's super meaningful to me. Is because I don't think of it as like cute. That's like not how I process the ideas. No, I mean, I don't I don't think of the story necessarily as cute. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I almost view it as like a fairy tale because they tell you they almost tell you in the beginning, right? Like there's this prophecy of this yeah. warrior in blue, and Nausicaa's like wearing blue from the start. So you're like. Not that there's like there. And she's not. Then she's wearing. She's not wearing. I know. I I know she's not later. And you know that was on my mind. But no, no. I was curious though, Jay. What do you think (laughs) about because this? I mean, the first movie is like a director for hire. He's literally making like another story in the long line of this character. Whereas this is like almost as personal as you can get with him creating the source material, then making the movie. Do you feel like there is a difference for you in terms of how he? Um, presents ideas and how like it seems like a lot more like like i said personal to him sure absolutely i don't think that you tell stories like this with directors for hire at least i mean again i'm i'm like out of my depth compared to you guys right but even in like my limited experience i don't feel like this is a story that you just sign any old person on for this is like a story that someone fights to tell and you giving me this context about you know he creates the manga to then tell the story you know fascinating last story you know also entertaining but like you say, you know, maybe a little bit more of that like director for hire type vibe, whereas this does feel, even though I can't say enough about Miyazaki, you know, because I don't have all this context, there's only the second one I've seen, um, as with most countdowns, I you know, have, haven't seen much or any of his films, but this, you know, definitely gives me more insight. Right, like I feel like I have learned more about him. If these themes come up in later movies, it'll be like, of course, we've been building on. This yeah, that would be an interesting thing to track. Is like, Absolutely. oh, he, he's you start to see sort of like his, his go tos, like there'll be some things that you'll be like, ah, he really likes flying or he really likes X or Y, you know, and those would be things that sort of manifest themselves as they. Sure. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get there for now. I think the only thing I've maybe heard is he really likes castles. There are castles in a lot of his movies, but that, you know, in terms of themes, in the title. not quite there yet. And we're making a joke about how many movies <laughs> have castle. In the yeah. Title. Three. Yeah. Three. Yeah. And something else he enjoys is his strong female protagonists we do have them in you know several of the movies that we're going to be watching i think well, we you should can't talk blame me for not knowing that, that after the, the last movie, one yeah, yeah. <laughs> no yeah not not the last one i was saying as a transition sure, sure, sure i think sure. we should talk a little bit more about the character of nausicaa because i think you know there are some other supporting players which have a, an important role to play you know i mentioned princess kushana i mentioned um, there's uh, Lord Yupa, of course. There's um, 
you know, some a few other characters who have important supporting roles to play. But so much of the movie feels like it rides on the shoulders of that character. And she really sort of is at the center of everything that's going on. Um, maybe we'll ask Paul to start this time. Um, you know, what what about this character draws you to the movie so much? Because the movie doesn't really work if this character doesn't work. I think it's just about how delicate she is in her interactions with all living beings. And it seems like the way that she treats all living things, plants, animals, humans on a similar or the same level where she respects their space, their right to exist as they are, as they are just trying and attempting to, um, her aversion to conflict, which obviously like in the world that she exists in is a pretty unique thing to be. Um, and maybe she's allowed to do that because she has this um, like amount of mobility and she has a lot of say so where she lives, you know, but um, I think, like I said, a lot of it is just the way that she sees things versus the way that she, I mean, the way that she does things is such a reflection of how she sees the world very differently from other people. Um, even something like creating the little sort of like, um, like, I don't know, like what you would call it, like her like little greenhouse, like underground essentially mm -hmm. from all the plants that she's gathered. Um, and like you just see she has a really close relationship and understanding of um, cause and effect in these places. So it's clear that she's been around adventuring a lot, right? She knows that when this happens, you have to get a, you know, you have to, this is, has to be a response. And she's resourceful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it's instinct too, though, right? Like she, who, how, how does she know that, you know, saving this ohm is going to do these things, but it's like, it doesn't matter to her. It's about like executing, you know, whatever the next right thing is versus like, you know, she might not even be looking at big picture a lot of times. It's about like caring about each individual choice that she makes. And that's sort of like what leads her on the path that she follows. Yeah. You know, for example, there's a big sort of decision at the end of the movie where the, the baby ohm is being used as bait and, you know, they want to, the, what's her sort of, what's, what's the soldier's name or whatever. That's kind of from the, the Valley of the Wind. Yeah. Mito. He's kind of, you know, trying to um, shoot down the plane, essentially, which would also, you know, kill the, the baby. Um, but like you say, she's really like compartmentalizing sort of this decision. And um, first and foremost, not even necessarily, you know, taking into account the larger context of what's going on. You know, she's trying to do whatever she can to save the life. Of she does kind of though because she's like, well, if you kill it, then we'll have no way to stop the turn. There'll be a stampede. There's yeah. some consideration yeah. for that stuff too. Sure, but you know, it all starts from a place of I have to do whatever I can to mm -hmm. save. The, I mean, she saves. She young. saves the Tomekian princess. Yeah. Like she saves the um, Asbel when he like falls off of, like his ship and everything. Like clearly, like this is just how she operates. And yeah, and she never also again. You know, we've talked about this, but she never believes that resorting to to violence is the answer right there's always the the thought that um she can do something to to calm them to there's some nuance though because when her when her father's killed she just goes full rage mode and like yeah i think you see that she is like a you know a person who makes mistakes and then she clearly regrets them afterwards and she expresses that right that like this is something that was so close to her that it you know she couldn't really think the way that she normally does but I think seeing that is interesting too, because it's not like she's this perfect ideal figure who's, you know, um, mistakeless, right? She has moments where she slips and stuff, but it's about like continuing to try to move forward. Yeah, she talks about, you know, how so sometimes struggling to control her rage. Um, and 
it does make me think because just because it's been a theme and you know a lot of movies even here recently you know i don't know how much miyazaki is interested in this movie at least in exploring the relationship of that to like her femininity and the fact that you know she has to control her rage i guess to maintain a particular image i don't know that that's a, a real theme that within this movie but it's something that i couldn't help but think about when she's having these con you know when she's having this uh discussion about having trouble controlling her rage as the female ruler right as this pacifistic person she has to you know keep up a certain appearance um and yeah i think i mean I, I thought that that was it's not something that it delves deep into but it is a little thing that makes sense and helps again give more texture to that character um that is so strong i, I think part of the reason that a lot of people tend to like ascribe some of these ideals to him though is because he's kind of like a very like cryptic and not like a super vocal figure in public and so i feel like sometimes we have this inclination to like project ideas of like these like complex and like it's not always he's talked some before about like a lot of the, the stuff that people talk about with the femininity of his characters and like the whole idea of like his strong female character it's not really necessarily something that he's like caring deeply about intentionally uh, yeah. something that doesn't mean that it can't affect things when it's made but i think sometimes like when someone is not as available and not as public with their ideas and their process, um, we tend to ascribe things that we want them to be like, or like that we, you know, we're sort of like projecting almost like writing like fanfic about directors or people, filmmakers or artists that we like. We're like, oh, he's thinking this clearly. Um, but I think sometimes it is like a little simpler than that. Jay, Scott, your guys' thoughts on, you know, this character and what, what makes it work? Yeah, I mean, I think I gave some of my thoughts earlier on what makes it work. I think talking about her characterization, being that she's so young, being that she's on this journey of, you know, it's been a thousand years, but she does have this sort of this optimism that, you know, we don't have to be at war with the things that we view as threatening, I think is is a very novel it seems like a very novel perspective, even from her own father. Like, I don't, like, we don't get that many details about her, about her father, about the king. Um, I think we probably have, we obviously have a lot more details about someone like Lord Yupa, who's on this like sort of constant fact finding mission of touring the different lands and just getting all the intel. But it does seem like, you know, the, I think it's really impactful where the first thing, first scene that you encounter with her is her sort of like investigating the like hollowed out body of one of the old like humanoid bio weapons. Like, I don't even know quite, why, qu the, quite the right way to describe it, but inside it, there's this ohm shell. And the way she's sort of going about like the curiosity, which she goes through the world, the notion that like something doesn't have, like something may be a threat and you may need to deal with that threat, but like not necessarily going into all confrontation, thinking that it must be like dispatched with prejudice. I think, you know, that that's sort of like, if there needs to be violence, I think that she's probably, I mean, she's, I'd imagine that we don't see this side of the character in the film. I'd be curious if something in the manga leads to this. Cause I was just looking at it. It's like, you know, he kept writing the, this manga for like into the nineties. I think yeah. like it was like so crazy. Like, 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 90, like, like mid, yeah, the mid nineties. Like, yeah. It's like 1100 pages, like yeah. 70 chapters. It's like crazy. A lot know? of it. It's a lot of it's not necessarily uh, the late stuff. Like the stuff in the nineties, I think is not written by him. I think it's like commissioned to other people and he might've storyboarded some of it, 
but I think sure. at a certain point he was not as involved as like the early times necessarily because he was obviously busy you know, running a studio and stuff. Yeah, I mean, but I think the point is is that like clearly this is a character in a story that's really important. I'd be curious how that characterization expands in that because you get the sense that like she's not afraid to be violent, even this leaving aside like the rage stuff, which I think is an interesting point to call out in that sort of relationship she has with that, but like. She never feels like someone who is, like you say, pacifist. Like, I'd almost say that she isn't necessarily pacifist. I think she probably is willing to engage in that level. I mean, that's the vibe that I get from the character. It's just like, this is not the thing I'm going to lead with. Like, I'm going to defend. She's more thoughtful. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm going to defend and protect the things that I need to defend and protect. But, like, my first instinct isn't going to be, you know, prejudicial, almost. So I think that sort of, that's like, that's almost what makes the character interesting to me is because... You know, obviously there's something there's something to say about a character that's completely pacifistic in this landscape, but I almost think that that's probably like not actually how this character is. And I think that you see how she, how proficient she is. Like she has this glider that she's extremely proficient with. Like she has a gun, which she you know I think pretty much only uses in the movie with like to shoot flares <laughs> to like notify people that she's there. But and she has like it seems like she has based on the rage scene that we see it like after her father is killed. Like she has a high level of proficiency in some sort of like martial arts or hand-to-hand combat. So she's clearly very capable of, of, of doing that. And, you know, wanting to control her sort of inner rage aside, like probably, I, I think that she is willing to do that. And I think that's interesting. I think for me, it's also what makes like the second part, half of the movie, like more almost like, I don't know what the right word is, but like when she actually starts to like travel the world and like see Pegite, for example, and like come across, you know, after she escapes from the toxic jungle with Asbel and goes to the, to the kingdom of Pegite. Like that's interesting because she's not really given, like she's by herself and all on her own and like vastly outnumbered by the surviving Pegite who are staging this sort of duplicitous uh, thing with the baby Ohm and, and getting the Ohm to attack, to attack the Valley of the Wind. But like the sort of desperation that you see there. Like, I think that 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 is one of those things that sort of doubles down the character of like, okay, this character's maybe there is some naivete in her, in her youthfulness, but there's like still some really desperate hunger that sort of feeds into her that you see in the earlier on in the movie. And that makes her really desperate in the second half. And yet still like the overriding emotion is not necessarily to just be violent. Like her overriding emotion isn't to immediately kill the Pegites who are carrying this baby ohm in front of uh, to, to the Valley of the Wind. Like, yes, she like, you know, disarms them for the lack of a better word, but her goal is not to, you know, end them, basically. I just think that it makes for a really interesting character. You know, I, I think the, I mean, I, I, we already talked about this, but I, I watched the, the English dub. I thought the performance was fine. Not one of the more, like not one of the most memorable voice performances, I think in a, in a Ghibli movie, but I think the sort of Allison Lohman, who I think voices Nausicaa, is able to sort of imbue that character with that sort of youthfulness that I think is really important to to come across with all these different characteristics that I was talking about. I think she's a great character. I think that in terms of all-time great female characters, again, like I, I call it a strong female lead. You know, I think we're going to talk about a lot of like lead female characters in, in Miyazaki movies. Not all of them always strong in like the sense that Nausicaa is. I think sometimes it's a lot more i mean like i mean maybe not surprising but like i think miyazaki as a 
as a creator has a lot more in mind in terms of like maybe Paul, you're right about it. I'm not necessarily thinking about like, oh, I need to I need to have this strong female lead. But I think his characters exhibit different kinds of strength. And Nausicaa is an example of someone who's like, you know, physically can be very imposing and strong and has these proficiencies and abilities. But it's like moral character is is probably the most important thing for so many. And there's obviously lots of different variations of that. But I think her her like moral toughness, her like emotional toughness in the face of these sort of really extreme tests. I mean, like, you know, the physical threat against her entire nation. And yet she's still able to maintain her like core ideals that I think is something that leads to this like notion of moral strength um, and fortitude that I think really sort of, at least in the, in the realm of the film really, I think characterizes her most of all. And in talking about it being, you know, talking about her being sort of more of a thoughtful character, one other thing which I like about the movie is that it's actually a pretty quiet movie at times. Um, you know, like, obviously we do have uh, Joe Hisaishi with his first sort of score that he worked on with Miyazaki on. We talked about last week how he didn't score Castle of Cagliostro, but we're going to obviously be hearing from him the rest of the way. But um you know, he the when the score does come alive in moments, it's you know it's triumphant, it's great, it really accents a lot of the scenes that are going on. But the movie is not afraid to just peel back and just be the characters in the environment, which again I think is emphasizing this sort of spiritual relationship that Nausicaa and others have with the forest, with the world around them. It's really asking us as the audience to connect with the world because there's nothing else you know going on distracting us from that i guess um and so you mentioned like the beginning of the film when she's discovering the ohm shell and stuff like that that's pretty quiet just other times too it, it doesn't feel like um it it needs to always have a score or you know dialogue whatever going and i think that really um helps establish this part of the character that we're talking about and just again the overall theme of like um connecting with the the natural world around you which again is really important to miyazaki i would say yeah i was, I was looking in at the, the score after sorry just really quickly i was looking at the score really after because i think this point is is one that i sort of locked in on in this viewing like i think the total score runtime if you just listen to the the soundtrack is like 35 minutes long so there's like a lot of, I mean, obviously you can reuse motifs and the same music plays multiple times in different parts of the film. But I think the point that you're making around the uh, willingness to be quieter or, or more silent. And then I think it, it sort of accents the moments where you choose to bring in sort of the 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 motifs that, I mean, the Nausicaa motif, I think is really iconic. Like I can, you know, like you think of the movie and I think you can hear the sort of like gentle tones and um almost i mean the, the chanting motif at the end is like burned mm -hmm. into my mind the, sure but like uh, 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 uh. like that's like very like iconic. Yeah. anyway uh so we've talked a lot about you know the the character obviously and in, in, in doing so well the, jay the did you want to talk about the character at all i'm not even sure what more i could say i mean i think you yeah, guys you summed it up well if you know Maybe to set, take a moment to also call out her physical toughness in addition to the emotional. I mean, we've already talked about her being adept with the glider and, you know, scaling the humanoid weapon and whatnot. I think of that scene towards the end when she's trying to keep the baby Ohm from, like, running off while she's being, like, you know, pushed into the acid lake and her heel starts to burn up. And 
again, just, a, just another example of, you know, holding steadfast. Like she's just overall so impressive again, for all the reasons you already mentioned. And I'm just throwing in one more example. No, it's a great, I mean, yeah. it's great because it's also putting the well-being of someone else and something else above her own physical status. You know, it's like, maybe like yep. she's, you know, obviously paying a price to, to try no, to- No, of course, which again, we see that like very minor version of it at the beginning with the squirrel fox, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when she lets like bite her finger and then you see that, you know, kind of happen at the end, obviously in a much more dramatic way. But like I said, that first scene, you know, kind of shows you that these are the lengths she'll be, I mean, she's willing to go that length for, you know, creatures yeah for a, a movie again that as we're saying advocates that violence is not usually the answer the action and battle scenes and stuff like that are pretty sick at times uh to to be honest with you i really love like the towards the end like the when the clouds get involved and stuff like that and you know they're dipping above and below the clouds and um i just think you know it, the the world is used you know, really well. Again, he loves his his clouds and the sky, I guess. But um, yeah, ne next movie, I'd say he goes even even bigger on in yeah. the uh, sky battle. Yeah, big cloud guy. In the yeah. yeah, he's a big cloud guy. Likes thunderstorms. But yeah, all that stuff is is cool. I mean, the the action definitely, I, I think, is very. I mean, obviously, Lord his whole sword, his whole sword play when he like jumps over all the dudes and. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. very when he just takes Nausicaa's, like, sword in the arm, I was like, yeah. all right, dude, that seems painful. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, the blood is just, like, dripping down the sword. She's like, yo, this dude's fucking crazy. He's hard. That's so metal. So it's probably worth talking a little bit more about, you know, sort of the ideas of the movie. We've talked, uh, you know, quite a bit about them, you know, in connection to the character of Nausicaa and, um, and everything. But um, what other thoughts, I, I guess do you guys have about what this movie is saying about about war about the environment about you know the things that it has on its mind the these ideals that are important to nausicaa do you think that you know these ideas hold up when viewed through today's lens because we're obviously still talking about the environment we're obviously still talking about war we're talking about these things nowadays you know is there is there something still that we can learn from this movie or is it kind of, you know, looking at these issues with a 1984 lens? I mean, a couple of years ago, definitely. I think Nausicaa's pro mask wearing in dangerous situations probably <laughs> yes. a good take by her at the time. Um, I know it's interesting too. because so she brazenly it, took off her mask in a dangerous situation. Yeah, that's true. So that's I think true. that we might have to question that that's a little right. bit. So maybe, maybe. Um, but like, you know, a lot of it's pulled from real life too, because like a lot of the ideas about the poisoning of the forest are like based on like there there's like a lot of mercury poisoning in um in Minamata Bay in Japan in like the late 50s early 60s and so like a lot of the, the ideals are pulled straight from that some of the imagery the way that things look and um I mean just that as like a, a sparking point I think that gives it like a touch of like um like like we said like realness that I think you know it feels anchored in something that's not totally constructed from someone's mind like it, it comes from a real place I feel like it's. I mean, I I, th I know that the Minamata Bay stuff is a more direct inspiration, but I feel like it's also impossible to not think about like, you know, the post Japan, like post nuclear bomb Japan, in yeah. the context of this film. I mean, like, yes, the Minamata Bay stuff I think is is pretty openly cited as as a source of inspiration, but you know that poison doesn't create a like 
desert wasteland of an environment for all these different people. And so I think it's also hard not to think about, you know, the impact of atomic weapons. And I know this is the eighties, but the cold war is still happening too. I mean, yeah, with, with the giant warriors, obviously it's like this stand in for like, you know, any types of like, you know, bomb or atomic or whatever warfare that was going on in the 19th, in the, you know, 20th century. Jay, what do you think? Get in here. About war, about the environment, because uh, <laughs> sure. What do you think about war? Yes, <laughs> you think war is bad for the environment? Of course. I mean, and in just thinking about how, you know, the after humans have like done what they've done in this world, right, and essentially decimated the environment, we now have an environment that is like, you know, you have creatures in like basically that aren't humans all, and like you know, the plants and the creatures like working in like their own ecosystem, right? As if just be like, okay, like, you know, humans can't really be a part of this because of what they've done. Like, that's not like an explicit, you know, necessarily intentional thing, but it just kind of is like the consequences of what humans did a thousand years ago, right? And if you, you know, if you do, if you believe that, let's just say, you know, we're overheating the planet and we might be like flooding ourselves or drying our, you know, our water supplies out or however you want to think of like humans potentially making the planet less habitable for ourselves. The idea that, you know, we may not be able to be a part of whatever ecosystem lives afterwards and we might constantly be at war with it. Like that to me feels like something that, you know, it's not like, I mean, it almost is like warning us about something like that, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of that is, just, I think, because those things echo throughout history, right? Those types of mistakes, yeah. that type of behavior, our inclination to do things without considering the long-term ramifications of the spaces that we're inhabiting. Like that stuff continues to be a theme not just in storytelling but just in actual human history yeah and i think on a macro level again we we've circled around this but it's kind of it has on its mind the idea that you know we are afraid of what is different right and that it again particularly in this movie these a lot of most of the people that we see respond to their fear with violence with aggression do not respond to it in the same way that Nausicaa responds to it and if we are so opposed to the idea of anything different right of these creatures having some sort of positive role in our environment whatever it may be um, then we're stuck with the same right and that means we're going to be in this cycle and you know this apocalypse happened 1000 years before the start of this movie and if not for nausicaa's actions who's to say you know we don't they don't have some sort of similar apocalyptic event that occurs so um i think you know again on a, on a big picture level it's it's dealing with those sort of ideas that we have to embrace what is different what is not like us um in order to so that so that we do not repeat the the mistakes of history in the past i think it's such an interesting thing too though because i think there's a lot of uh, this is obviously different because this is you're talking about something that's like more organic and and the like bio weapon you know is organic in the sense that it seems to be you know a living organism that they make but like as a as a stand-in for you know this wet these weapons that we're talking about whether it's nuclear or whatever it might be it's interesting because I think that's also that is an example of them embracing something that isn't like them or that they don't understand and that they don't know. So I think there's like also some additional level of 
being thoughtful about how you embrace the things you don't know. Because obviously what they're trying to do with the with the warrior, with the weapon, is control it and use it to obviously essentially conquer the land, right? The idea is that they're going to take over the world. That's not how it's presented, but like that's the notion that's be, that's really happening in the film. And so I think you are right about the film is about embracing things that are different from you. But I think it's interesting because it's not like a uniform thing because these like there's a you know, there's a large there's several countries worth of people trying to embrace something they don't understand with this warrior and this weapon and, and use it and manipulate it. But maybe I would just say to add on to your point, it's like accepting and embracing things that we don't understand, but like for what they are, not for like what you're trying to manipulate them into and things like yeah. that. Well, yeah, because the, the giant warrior basically ends up being collateral damage in all of this, right? Because sure. um, he, you know, they, they it wasn't him him from his, from his embryo before it's, it's time. And, um, you know, he doesn't end up being able to be used for its intended purpose. So they are engaging with something that's different. Um, but like you say, they're trying to manipulate it. And I think, again, it all comes from this sort of fear and their only way to respond to their fear is with violence, with aggression, with trying to wipe out that, which is, is different. I think one of the interesting things about Nasuka as a character too, is that clearly her peaceful practices have been practiced. Like she has this like flashbulb and like this, um, like these devices and like these like ways that clearly she has practiced trying to like calm down the ohm and like she has um, done this regularly. It's not like she's just like deciding to do this on a whim. Like it requires like, oh, like repeated attempts and, and consistent effort to get good at these things and to be able to have that kind of perspective and be able to execute your ideas. Not just have, you know, ideas are not just ideas. Sometimes to implement them, you have to like put work in, you know. And, and there is, I guess, you know, maybe some implication that she's learned from Lord Yupa, right? Because he himself seems to have some sort of ability to soothe and calm sort of in a way that, um, you know, she also exhibits later in the movie. So maybe there's a little something there about learning from mentors and those with experience and things like that, um, because I think that's you know, some of the role that his character plays throughout the movie. But um, I guess sort of the last major thing to talk about is just visually the movie, because we haven't necessarily talked a ton about that. Um, you know, we, we got into a little bit of early hand-drawn animation discourse last episode and what we think about it as a style, um, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced here than what we saw, you know, it was a few more years after the castle of Cagliostro when this was released. Um, but what did you guys think of the world? How, you know, how it's, how, how it looks, how, you know, the environment, all of these creatures, the creature design, everything that's going on visually, again, does it hold up, right? Is this um, something that complements the movie, complements the story it's trying to tell, complements these characters, or is it something that we look back on as, you know, kind of dated and kitschy. I think we talked about this last time, and I still think it's true that the animation style does feel like it holds up. And I think for this particular story, I think if I were to think, I think if I were to picture this, you know, as like computer animated, the way like, you know, Sunday or Saturday morning cartoons were, like, I think it would 
feel a little more sci-fi than fantastical. And I feel like, you know, the character of Nausicaa, I think just more fits wet more well, fits better into a story that feels like a little bit more fantastical and not like, you know, even though we're like set in a dystopian future, there still feels like that fantasy element to it rather than I'm trying to think of like a sci-fi equivalent. One's not coming to mind at this exact second, but I think Children that, yeah. I think that the hand-drawn animation style serves the, the story. Yeah. The, Sorry? So you're, you're, you're the talking famous animated, animated film Children of Men. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you were just looking for any example of sure, a sci-fi dystopia. I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Monsters vs. <laughs> Aliens or like uh, Titan Age or something. Yeah, yeah. Cloudy of the yeah, Chance of Meatballs yeah. is my dystopic future that I look forward yeah. to in animation. <laughs> it works well yeah, here. You said dystopic. <laughs> well, I think yeah. to me, I just kind of prefer hand-drawn and I think, I just love the aesthetic. I love the the detail of the backgrounds and like you know obviously conditions are different and part of this is because of where it was made and how long it took but like you know this movie adjusted for inflation costs like under 2.3 million dollars um and it's like fucking yeah that's crazy. why they should pay their animators more in Japan. <laughs> it's fucking crazy i mean they probably should have at the time i'm sure um but it's yeah. crazy to think that like that, you know there are movies now that cost like quite literally 40 40 times that and look like absolutely look awful worse. Um, and like well, you know, well, part four, of it is, forty is times toys. that is it is a really cheap animated movie these days. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's actually a hundred times no, that you get you get Elemental. I think. Well, I think when you get the quest, the question of like, does it age well? I think in a way, for some like, maybe the answer is technically kind of no, just because sensibilities for people have shifted so much that I just think not that it's not good, but it is pretty different. And I think like fundamentally, like it doesn't have that level of like activity that i think um a lot of movies especially movies in the west that are made like in the modern day have and i think this is something that interesting to, to track i think for jay is you've probably seen a lot of other animated movies disney pixar and stuff like that i'm sure like in your lifetime and it's like scott harvey mentioned earlier that you should really pay attention to is just how much quieter the his movies are i think especially with the movie after this castle in the sky there are so many moments depending on if you watch the dub or the sub, it, it kind of is different, actually, which is kind of interesting. But there are so many moments where it's like, uh, American movies would just put in, if characters are like walking somewhere, it would just cut, or it would just put in random dialogue of them just like cracking jokes. Whereas like, the thing I love about the way that um, that Ghibli operates generally, and, and you know, some other movies of a, of a similar style too, is that it just lets moments breathe and it lets you kind of like sit and soak and listen to like the beautiful score or just look at, the design of the world as opposed to filling every second with constant motion and action and i, I think like i love the and you know nasca's more fast-paced his first two movies are a lot more fast-paced frankly than almost anything else he makes i think from here on out but just pay attention to that as like the space that he allows to exist because i think so much anime so many animated movies that are so specifically aimed at like young children especially are so antic and crazy and there's like a million things happening a second and i just find that it's like that get like like gives me a headache. Like I just don't like the constant need to be having something happen. And I kind of like that moments get time to breathe and you get to think about things that happen and like you can sit on like a line of dialogue that is really profound or poignant as opposed to just like keep trying to keep your attention. And I think like it's a good thing like to practice to like learn, especially if you're young, to watch movies and look at movies and media like this as opposed to like needing to be consistently like entertained the whole time if that makes sense but well, I, I, think that, that's, that, I like that, the aesthetic execution of that 
And I think that raises the interesting question, which we may have again throughout the series of, you know, who are these movies for, right? Are they for children? Are they for, you know, adults? Because I think what Paul is describing is a particular style that is probably meant to appeal more to children, right? Who for sure. are going to get bored if, you know, there's not something happening every 30 seconds, as you say. Well, I think they're going to get bored um, if, that, if something doesn't happen every 30 seconds if they grew up watching movies that are insane and everything's yeah. happening all the time. Sure. It's like almost like if you condition someone to expect something, then they're going to need it and desire it and stuff. You know? Look, if you grew up watching the coked out minions do coked out things, then like, what do you, what do you expect? I mean, you know I, I mean, honest, I mean, that's, that is kind of an, like kind of an example of like just something that is like, Totally. That's I'm not joking. Yeah, you get used serious. to and familiar with, like you're gonna be like always needing that or wanting that because it sets your like baseline so high. We got like, what what you're saying is we gotta just condition our kids on like 2001 a space odyssey and and stuff I so mean, they I'm, just I'm not saying that <laughs> go that crazy, but I think there's something yeah. to be said about showing kids certain types of movie like media in general so that they like, you know, have a baseline that is like yeah it's hard Cocoa to Mel, obviously Coco melon on repeat baby Coco Mel, you know all the it's yeah. hard, like i understand like as a parent like but i just think that it would be such a great thing that's why i was excited when these movies all got added to um max formerly hbo max um is yeah. like it gives you know people a way to access them like they're, they're hard to get a hold of for a while you have to like buy them on blu-ray physically and like now it's like there's more of an opportunity for more people to see yeah. them and see them in a, like in a more you know at home in a different more kind of relaxed so you don't have to go out to like you know fathom event screening where like they're projecting with your own it's so it's that's that's so real honestly <laughs> you know it's a whole separate podcast to talk about fathom events messing up Miyazaki, Ghibli, uh, Ghibli movies in the theater. But I think that what you're saying is so interesting because I think I remember one of the first things that I came across in like My Neighbor Totoro, which is obviously a film we're going to get to in a few in a few weeks. But I feel like that's often cited as like this is a great movie to introduce your like small child to because it's like obviously there's, there's no we, plot. We're going to have a whole podcast about, about the movie. We can talk about that more in detail then. But like, I think that when you see that movie and when we talk about it, it's going to make sense why someone might say that. But I think, Paul, the point you're making is really interesting because, you know, if if this is the first animated film you're showing your kid, like, but like after you show them, I don't know, like what is like Bluey and Coco Melon? Like it's they're not the same. Bluey and Coco Melon are not the same. I got to say that. No, I know that they're not. I'm just citing like examples of like early childhood animated series that that are popular these days they're definitely not the same but i'm saying like those two like the the experience like you're not like your kids like not ready for a totoro if they're watching like bluey and coco melon you know what i mean like at least i i don't i don't interpret it that way at least. i, I feel like that's disrespecting you a little bit you know? we, we like can have this conversation when zach is on the show because <laughs> he shows his child bluey every single episode so uh he well, he's be gonna be the expert to... he show he shows yeah. his yeah i mean god bless him I mean, Zach that. enjoys it, I think, as much as Theo does, if not more. So that's, sure. again, another. But, I mean, I, I don't mean that as a hit against. I look, I have no experience watching Cocomelon or Bluey, but I, I've seen the animation oh, style. Get on it, dude. I mean, look, uh, my media diet right now is Steven Soderbergh's Full Circle and Oppenheimer every other day. You've got to crunch some tape. you got to crunch some tape. I've been <laughs> crushing plenty of tape, all right? Everyone calm down. Crushing, crushing plenty of tape. Um... But look, I, to get back on topic here, I think it's I think it is interesting because I think to go back to elements of the plot, like 
and the and the music, the being quiet part, I like I think one of the things that is really important to talk about, at least in my own experience, is there are certain like video like Japanese video game franchises that already existed before this movie came out, but just feel like infinitely inspired and like in conversation with the type of media that like Nasuka is. Like Legend of Zelda like is in con- like absolutely taking inspiration in its iterations over time from this film and, and Castle in the Sky. Like a hundred percent. Like those movies like those these two movies, like this one and the next one are like super Zelda in my mind, like Zelda and views like it's the same sort of style in terms of aesthetic. Often it's just like dystopic. Like sometimes it's like more steampunk. Um kind of like this movie is like this movie's pretty steampunk and i just find that whole notion like really interesting from like a cultural perspective and i'm not saying like nausicaa is like the progenitor of like steampunk aesthetic in japanese media but i think it's really interesting that clearly it picked up on something but i think then like miyazaki came as such a touchstone of culture and nausicaa is a touchstone character like a character in that culture that it's like hard not to see the inspiration i mean to the point that like Final Fantasy, which is like a super mainstream video game franchise, like the the birds that Lord Yupa has, like they're in the movie, like those are just chocobos, like those are like those are like a huge thing in Japanese, you know, video games now. Like they're just like, I think if you talk, like if I listened to an interview one time, and they're talking about, like, yeah, they're just a direct inspiration from from just these random birds that are pretty much only in the first scene of Nasuka Valley of the Wind, and they're just like this huge recurring. Um, species in this one of the biggest video game franchises in the world. So I just think that, like, that's really interesting and cool. And I think it sort of speaks to the Japanese cultural impact, at least, that Miyazaki's already having at an early point in his career. I mean, Which Evie doesn't that. not look like a squirrel fox. Sure. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I think we can. Uh think about moving into the wrap-up phase here of our discussion uh so I, we're going to go around the horn and uh ask our usual question what was your your favorite scene or moment from this film jay we'll go to you first i think for me it would have to be nausicaa trying to keep the baby home out of the acid lake the scene that i was talking about earlier again she's like you know getting burned and then later you know takes like more physical hits trying to you know keep the peace stop the ohm herd, protect this baby ohm. Like, you know, it just, again, like a real testament to her strength. And, you know, I, I felt that sitting here. Paul? I think mine is kind of like almost a blink and you'll miss it, but it's when her and Asbel um, get stuck together underneath the forest and um, she comes to the realization that, the forest is air is purified and then she just starts crying because she's so i was gonna say this thank fact. you um, <laughs> yeah a major I, point I in the movie which we just didn't even talk about we didn't even talk about like a lot like one of the main <laughs> discoveries and plot points in the movie but yeah yeah right which you know to briefly touch on it is basically that the ohms and stuff have been protecting the land and allowing the it to heal Plants, yeah, and everything to be able to flourish and there to be clean water and clean soil and all this stuff. Um, and that's because of the insects and the ohms and everything um, that, that that is able to happen. So there's that sort of... Oh, the design of the ohms is so cool. Like the, like, that was, yeah, that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk sick. about. We slipped into wrap-up phase and I started talking yeah. about cultural inspiration, but the trilobites, oh, baby. I absolutely hate, like, seeing one of those things in real life would, like, oh, my God, I'd hate that. I'd absolutely hate that. It'd be awful. 
forget like the size of them. I like, just mean like a real life trilobite, like a small little insect bug with those kind of legs. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, Scott, your favorite scene or moment? Not sure. not involving the tri trilobites, I guess. It actually will be involving the trilobites. Oh, okay. Um, I actually like one of the the okay. second scene of the movie when you actually first meet Nausicaa. There's, I mean, there's obviously the larger scene where she's exploring the uh, the the the, in, the hollowed out innards, like very Star Star Wars: The Force Awakens Ray opening scene, um, exploring the hollowed out not hollowed out but like the cruiser for parts. She's exploring this hollowed out body of one of the you know thousand year old warriors and whatnot. I think that's a really cool introduction, but I really like the introduction that we get sort of after that when you first start to see how confident she is in the world. Like she has her glider. She's saving Lord Yupa from the Ohm. And I just think that scene really captures a lot of what's really awesome about the film. And it gives you the introduction to like, you sort of like Nausicaa is obviously very familiar with the Ohms, but like there's this cool point where you're like, Oh, this massive Ohm shell. I wonder what a real life one looks like. And then it like segues straight into showing you what, you know, an ohm and all of its, you know, berserker rage looks like. And those legs, man, creepy. I don't like Well, the way it's animated is what makes it cool. It's cause well, yeah, because like, no, clearly no, no creature could transport itself on the legs the way that it's yeah. animated. But um, mm -hmm. something about it makes it better because of that. And yeah, I, I like the sort of chase. You get to see her use her bull roarer or whatever the insect charm um, device that she has. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier. Paul, like the flash, the flash bangs or whatever, like the sort of like the, the flash pellets that she uses and her sort of resourcefulness for the lack of a better word. And she doesn't even know who it is, right? That she's saving. Like, obviously it ends up being this really important person, Lord Yupa, but she doesn't even know what she's saving and, and her sort of selflessness and immediately springing into action to, to save this person. Cause she, you know, she's not in the Valley of the Wind. It could be anyone, right? She's out in the, in the desert outside of it. So, just a really strong introduction to her character. Yeah, and I was going to say the the part that Paul talked about as sort of a backup to saying the ending because I thought it would come up or you know, say it'd be sick of you to be like this is one of cinema's great endings. Also, my favorite scene, just this yeah, is not. Well, I do try to do that. Some when I've talked a lot about a scene, just like say something else for my favorite scene or moment. But nobody brought it up, so yeah, I do think the ending is kind of unbeatable. Um, again, just the the triumph of of um, Nausicaa walking in, walking home to her people on the, the Ohm's tentacles, um, having been revived by the land in the same way that, you know, sort of the plants and everything were revived, like we were talking about, um, is, you know, it's, it's an extremely powerful image. Also, the movie just ends after that, which is great. Like, it doesn't mess around and, uh, you know, have like a five years later, everyone is living in harmony now in the valley of the wind it's just like no we're dropping the mic we're getting out yeah I you, have to go say, read the, you have to go read the manga to see what happens next so. i guess so uh, the the smallest of critiques just because uh, you know I, i'm having to nitpick for this movie but um with that ending one thing i don't don't necessarily love because i am a always a show not tell person is like when she's walking in there and it like breaks away to go to the old lady whatever her name is that oh is baba there. yeah baba. and she's like the blue dress 
the the you know the the yeah, fields of gold or whatever the prophecy is he's like it spells it out for us right there i'm like no just let the moment happen right like we get it we know we they should have brought rather than tan they should have she obama should have been wearing the tapestry as a shawl and it looks like <laughs> zooms turns around <laughs> yeah. oh man I'm i will say my 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 take on the ending because we didn't really get to talk about it very much is that i think that i think that a better ending would have been if she died and stayed dead that's my take yeah, I like the cheese. I mean, I'm gonna go way at, in the left field and say, Paul, the ending you told us about where she just flies off and it's very vague. That, Nolan Head, let's go. He's in. Me. You know. compare it to Inception, he's and Jay's like, I'm, I'm th- <laughs> making a stand. I'm doing it. <laughs> Even before, I, I, I would not have made that comparison, but I do see where you're coming from. I, I, I disagree with that comparison, by the way. But that's. I said it's a flaw. Same, but like, you know, I could think. Uh, what a dumb face. comparison. I can't believe <laughs> yeah. you made it. going to flame you for it on the podcast and put it up front. But this is the I cold was trying, open. I was trying to flaming. think of some, yeah. some joke uh, based on what Jay was saying about, oh, the French dispatch should have just, you know, ended at this particular point, and then maybe he would have actually liked it more instead, but I couldn't quite get there with the joke. Oh, man. I, I'm not wow. sure it exists. You, you, you were reaching there. <laughs> That's tough. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to evangelize you to the greatness of that film, Jay. Someday. Long countdown. Man. I think you might let Go it. On. You might need to let it sit for a little while. Amen. Leave it to Scott to make a this this podcast about a white another white guy. I was. Yeah. I knew. I had as soon as you started talking, well, Paul, I thought that was well, the direction you were going to go. <laughs> Nolan. Nolan already came up, so we're all even now, I guess. But he's um, British, though. <laughs> Is that okay. better? International, is that international, yeah, yeah, international. More, more famous for colonizing. Bro, okay, we'll say, tell that to the look Oscars. At, look at my, <laughs> look at where I'm from, and tell me that's better. Like yeah, New York, it is better. Anyway, anyway, uh, let's put a score on it. Uh, Jay, what do you give Nasca out of ten? I'm gonna give it an eight point oh. I'm, I mean, I like liked it, and I honestly am excited to revisit it at some point. I might even consider rewatching it sub because one thing and we didn't really touch on this but the the amount of the character Gnosticus character talking to herself that feels like very much a thing that i've seen in like other anime i feel like it's not a thing you really see as much in like american uh like cartoons or other animated uh products where you know she's talking to herself a lot like oh no this is happening and i have to go do this and i have to go do that whereas i feel like i see that more in anime and I wonder if it'll even just like it's not that it felt unnatural, but I wonder if it'll feel even more natural just in like consuming it that way. Something that comes to mind. But you know, the last one, like Cagliostro, enjoyed it a lot, was not thinking about the next time I'd watch it again. Whereas this one, I'm like, you know, already thinking about another way to watch it. All right, Paul, your score. I can think of nothing that Hayao Miyazaki would hate more in life. And four guys on a podcast being like, "So, what number do you give this this uh, this okay, out of Okay, well, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> that said, uh, ten out of ten. Scott, nine point five. Nine point two for me. Very little to dislike about this movie, in my opinion. I, I do think it could end up ranking very highly when we get to the the end of this for me, because I really, really enjoy this movie, in spite of it seeming like something I would not enjoy. All right, well, that wraps up our discussion of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Paul, thank you for joining us. Um, we, we really appreciate it. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Countdown. 
series if you have and you'd like to support us don't forget about our patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods and don't forget of course about some like it scott right here in the same feed where you found this podcast new release reviews every single week uh with me and scott and of course the countdown series will continue with part three next time as we'll be reviewing miyazaki's first official studio jubilee movie with another fantasy adventure film the 1986 film castle in the sky but until then for scott shelton and jay habib i'm scott harvey we'll see you next time